Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. And welcome back to the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther. And today we have a distinguished guest who I consider a friend and a mentor and who is without doubt one of the most impressive guys I know. And that, of course, is Brigadier General, retired, Krusty Goodfellow. Uh, so if you don't, don't know Krusty, Krusty actually has had a remarkable Air Force career. He has flown uh, B-1s. He's flown the NAOC. He's flown Helos. He's flown, I, I wouldn't say he's flown everything in the Air Force, but he's flown a lot. Uh, I met him for the first time. He probably doesn't remember this, but I met him for the first time when he was the new uh, commandant of the Squadron Officer College, and I used to offer the ethics uh, elective. And so that was the first time we met. And then uh, about three years ago, we sort of reconnected when we both were in Louisiana, when he uh, had recently retired from Global Strike Command uh, as the Director of Plans and Programs. And he now is, of course, the CEO of the Small Business Consulting Corporation. And so with that extended introduction, let me welcome into the show, Krusty Goodfellow. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, thank you, Adam. Um, th thanks for having me. I'm actually um, really looking forward to the discussion. So before we get started to talk about China and technology and bringing technologies into Global Strike Command and into the DOD, I want to ask about one of the things that that you've done that's sort of an interesting and you know it's not something people do every day so you had the record for the fastest around the world flight which i mean not many people have the chance to do that i mean obviously you're the only one because you have the fastest so tell us about that uh tell us about that how, how did that come about how was that you know, it's kind of an interesting story. So we did it back in 1995. I was flying B1s at the time, and um, I'm walking down. You know, B1 is a four passenger or a four crew airplane. It's got two pilots and two weapon systems officers. And um, you know, I'm walking down a hallway, and um, a friend of mine he says, "Hey, my actual name is Gerald, but my call sign is Krusty." Back then, I didn't have a call sign yet. And he's like, hey, Gerald, um, you know, I, I got I, I, I'm actually writing a speech for the, the wing commander for a um, for it was the 10th anniversary of the B1s, you know, um, showing up at Dias Air Force Base. And they're having a big air show in June. And he'd been asked to you know draft a speech for, for the wing commander. And he says, you know, I was going through this world record book. And, um, you know, the B1 had set a bunch of like time to climb records, mostly you know, for in its weight class. 
but he got looking through the book and he says, you know, kind of the ultimate world record is a, like a nonstop flight around the world. He says, hey, what would it prevent us from flying? He asked me, what do you think would prevent us from flying around the world in the B-1? I said, well, I don't think much, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an airplane capable of doing it. You know, it, it's built for long duration flight. I said, probably just tankers, you know, get enough tankers to get us refueled all the way around the world. And uh, that started it. And from there we briefed up, you know, we, we got to planning and I went put together an initial plan pretty quickly, you know, on, and um, we, we started briefing people. And in the end, you know, uh, you know, a couple of captains, you know, Chris, Chris is a neat guy. He, he ended up, um, he's a, he's a congressman, congressman now in the state of Utah, second congressional district in Utah. But at the time, you know, we're just these fairly new captains to fly the B1 that thought it'd be something fun to do. And, uh, you know, and um, the Air Force was looking at a concept they were calling the, the global strike concept, I think. It was the idea that you could take off anywhere in the world, hit targets in like 24 hours if you absolutely had to, conventional targets. And so, you know, it was something that we thought would be neat to prove in the B-1. And in the meantime, you know, set a, set a few world records along the way. So, you know, we, we made that all happen from that initial discussion in February. In, in June, we actually flew the mission. We actually uh, flew two B1s around the world. Um, Chris was actually in one of them, and I was in one of them. And uh, so we both, you know, but but we flew in formation all the way around. Did it in 36 hours, 13 minutes, 36 seconds. We dropped bombs um, actually along the way on um, uh, 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 Torishima Island in Japan. Uh, the Pekino, uh, the first the first bomb run was at the Pekino Range, just south of Sicily. Um, just a little island off of uh, off of um, the the Italian coast, and then Torishima Island in Japan, and then uh, we dropped our last bombs in the Utah Test Range. Uh, we we did six aerial refuelings and did it all in about thirty six hours, and it was just you know it was just you know it was kind of funny you know getting it all together and getting the permissions and getting all the tankers we needed. You know that that was some really hard work. All the all the all the things that we had to do to get it going but it, it was a great lesson to me that if you're willing to do some hard work sometimes you can do some really neat and and big things and so i've uh you know to, to this day it's one of the most memorable things you know that i ever did in my career and just was glad you know th these are the kinds of things captains still think of in our, our air force you know and we we get some remarkable young people that join our air force you know and um you know sometimes you get to do something cool like that so anyway that, that's the story well, that's uh, that's something uh, certainly many folks would uh, would love to have been able to be a part of. So that's a that's a great you, story. Adam. Now <laughs> let's turn to a, a a less fun topic, and that is the topic of threats to the United States. And yep. so as you as you sit around and ponder sort of the the decades to come, and as you look at the threats facing the nation. What do you see as, as the big threats facing the United States? I'll tell you, I, I, think, I, I think we're in a really interesting situation in our country today. You know, we're, we're you know, I, I think it was like 1937 or so, you know, it was, you know, determined that the U.S. had about the 16th best Air Force in the world. And, you know, Hap Arnold got tapped um, to, uh, yeah, I think he was a two-star general in the Army at the time, was to go build an Air Force, you know, and, Luckily, he'd spent a career, you know, um, um, learning about everything to deal with aviation, you know, with with air power. 
So if there was a if there was a guy who had built a new weather instrument in his garage, he went and saw it. If there was a guy who built a new airfoil, a new wing in his barn, he went and saw it. He knew everybody who was doing everything with aviation. Um, you know, he's best friends, as I understand it, with like president of Pan Am Airline, the biggest airline in the country at the time. So when he gets this assignment, he, you know, he's basically told, hey, we, we think, you know, in the next four years, we very well may have to fight Germany, could even be Japan, you know, and that uh, we, we don't have an Air Force ready for it. So he starts building and within about four years, he built the greatest Air Force in, in the world. We still had to, you know, you know, train a bunch of professional airmen. We didn't have enough of them to fly all the airplanes, everything that we we're going to do in World War II. So we took some really heavy losses all the way until about the middle of 1943. But we had this great leader who 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 could do it and, and some foresight in the country that there was a real threat out there and um you know we did it and um you know the the, the rest so to say is history the, the problem we have now i believe is i believe that the biggest threat facing our country right now is china and we still talk about china in so many circles as if it's um you know at best a near peer competitor and um, I've, I've just come to believe over years of you know, war gaming, you know, looking at China really hard and what they could do that they they in fact are are actually I believe they're a peer competitor. And, um, you know, it's really interesting if they are a peer competitor, um, you know, um, then um, then the world has changed and um, they, they, they and if and, and they seem to it, it seems to be happening really fast. So I'll give you, you know, I, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts here. So if if they're a pure competitor, um, we, we've got problems. You know, I, if, if it's worse and we're the pure competitor, it's even worse. Because I'll tell you, you do not want to live in a world where China is the superpower and the U.S. is not. It would not be as good a world as it is today. It would be a much harsher world. But we have a situation where where I believe that China is pursuing a better strategy than the U.S. I'm not even sure what the the strategy is of the U.S. to to, to keep us most updated, you know, and, and keep our technological advantage over a country like China. So I'll give you, a, for instance, last year, back in April of 2021, the director of national intelligence came out and basically said, hey, you know, our, our, our biggest problem is China has a well-funded what they call a military civil fusion strategy, you know, and everything right. that they, you know, and, and everything they do is about how do we take the, the military and what's going on in the civilian sector and, or, or what, what's being developed in, in, in the civilian sector and make sure that that's fused in a way that it'll help the Chinese military. So Adam, this means if you're a Chinese businessman, I don't care if you're, you know, if you're, um, you know, you've come up with some kind of new satellite communication system. It could be you've got some chips that are going to make a computer faster. You know, I, I, maybe you've just figured out a better way to, you know, a, a faster way to cook hamburgers. You can feed people faster. You know, the very first thing you're thinking, because it's part of their, you know, it's, it's part of their culture. You know, it's been, a, it, it's policy, it's in law, it's everything. Your very first thought is how is this thing that my company is doing, how will it enable and make the Chinese military better? Couldn't it be more different in our world? You know, we have companies yeah. that are working with us and their employees find out they protest and they stop working with us. You know, I mean, there's right. real examples of this and, and they'll continue to work with China. Right. 
And um, so when I read this is, is the problem, the DNI study, I thought, oh, this is great. I've been thinking about these same thoughts. I could have written this 10 years ago myself. And then I realized, no, there's there's a problem here. They've only got a third of the strategy. And whoever, and, and by the way, I, even that third is better than what we're doing in the U.S. You know, Sun Tzu, everybody's heard of interesting, a, a, a great, you know, a, 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 a military, a Chinese military philosopher from a couple of thousand years ago. And what does he say? He says, strategy without tactics is um, the slowest way to victory. In other words, if you have a superior strategy to your enemy and, um, and, um, you, and, and you're losing tactically, you lose a lot of battles, you know, you're, you're not, you know, executing very well, but your strategy is superior. He says, you're going to win. It's just a really slow road to victory. But then he says, tactics without strategy is just the noise before defeat. You know, and I think this is what we've experienced. I think literally since about the end of the Cold War, we haven't had a comprehensive strategy in the U.S. and in, in, in how we're going to defeat our enemy. And um, and China actually does. So they and and like I said, when when they talked about the military civil fusion strategy, you know, I, I realized they only got a third of it. So what they described there is a Chinese. The Chinese will build it, but they'll also buy it. So, you know, I, I remember I, I had a neighbor years ago who was working in China and, you know, working rocket technology with him for some major prime contractor he's working with. And, you know, he would say things like, you know, they're over there selling them stuff with the full faith and blessing of the U.S. government. You know, they're going to be our space partners. Right. And I remember I'd talk to him on occasion. I'd say, how's things going over with the Chinese space industry? He'd say, oh, it's all it's all dorked up. You know, they blew up another rocket on the pad, you know, last week, you know, and they're never going to get it. I'd say, come on, they're going to be one of the largest economies in the world in 20, 25 years. They're never going to catch us. He'd say maybe in 2040 or 2050. Well, I heard in 2021, they've got like double the U.S. space capability. And I, and you know, it's not 2040, it's 2021, right? Right. You know, but, and um, so, you know, I, and I say, and they're, they've doubled us. If, if that's true, I say, well, thank goodness for Elon Musk or it'd be even worse, right? You gotta, yeah. you gotta do things. So what did they do? They, 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 they're willing to buy that space technology. The, the, the other thing people talk about all the time is they steal everything from us, you know? Yeah. That was my question for you. My question yeah. for you is what about the theft? Yeah, so so there you go. So they steal it, and we hear it all the time. Oh, the Chinese wouldn't be as far along as they are militarily or other way, or, or even just technology wise, if they hadn't stole it from all of us. I just throw my hands up and I hear. I say, please stop talking about it. We have to live in a world that is as it is. So if I, when I'm 80 years old, or some Chinese official sitting in my living room forcing me to learn Mandarin, I'm going to be upset about it. Right. It's, it's going to upset me. And I'm not going to the, the fact that he's in my living room and he stole his way into my living room, you know, isn't I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to be mad that somebody didn't prevent this guy from coming, you know, being in my living room. You know, but this is, you know, so it is what it is. We have to figure out how to deal with this. So they'll build buyer steal. And I don't know what our strategy is. You know, we, I guess our strategy is we just think we can outspend them. But the problem is that we every, we, we don't seem to as much as we be, seem to spend. We don't be able we, we don't seem to be getting the same bang for the buck that they are. Right. They, they're bringing real new technology. They're they're catching that they've caught us really fast is what it amounts to. And, um, you know, we're still walking on the track field and they're sprinting. You know, something's got to change. We 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 have to bring new capabilities into our military, or or we're gonna we're gonna become a second rate military, and the world is gonna be a bad place. Uh, you know. Anyway, d d does that answer your question? The things that I I'm thinking about, and you know, um, 
you know, a problem. You know, I've always liked being able to identify problems because I say if you can identify a problem, you can usually get to work on a solution. And I'm actually kind of working on some solutions to this problem. Are we as the United States? It seems to me that we're sort of in a position, in many respects. If you take take uh, Sub-Saharan Africa as one example, so the United States domestically, you know, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, and then you know, Edison invented the light bulb, and these American inventors invented these technologies, and then we built significant infrastructure. To, to put this across the United States. So the telephone's a great example. So we spent billions of dollars installing, you know, hard telephone lines. And then ultimately, if you think about today, most of us don't even have a landline anymore. We just have cell phones. And rather than, so then you jump to, you know, Africa. And so the Africans, they didn't have... Uh, you know, landlines. And so they never invested in those, that, you know, hardwired infrastructure. And what they did is they just skipped to cell phones. And so they skipped right. all of that investment and then just took advantage of that newer technology. And where we built, you know, banks is another example where we built, you know, spent billions of dollars on this banking infrastructure. Uh, you know, the majority of, of, Sub-Saharan Africans are able to, to use apps and store money on their phone. And so they can skip the whole banking infrastructure. And I guess I wonder, you know, these are just two sort of examples of leapfrogging technologies and doing it. It's much more cost effective when you don't have to be, you know, the first mover and the developer. You just get to take advantage of it. And so I wonder, are we in a position with China today in which because the Chinese will either buy or steal and then in some cases develop themselves, that they can they can sort of leapfrog uh, all of that heavy investment that we've undertaken to, to build these technologies and to put the money into that technology, that infrastructure, that they then, you know, they steal, you know, millions of lines of code from the F-35 or you know, whatever else they may, they, they build drones that look almost exactly like ours. You know, they, they build aircraft that look like the F-22. So I, I guess my question is, are they able to just sort of leapfrog and avoid all of that resource intensive development phase? And is that giving them a leg up? I think Adam, of course it is, right? And I think, I think the answer is that they've in fact done that. You know, when you look at airplanes that look pretty close to ours and they're building them in, in some cases in greater numbers than ours. And, um, you know, it, for, for, for tons cheaper than ours, you got to be a little, you, you got to be a little bit, you know, concerned. You know, I remember years ago, this was years ago. This is probably like 2000, I, I don't know, probably 2007 or eight. I remember reading about, you know, uh, this, this new stealth fighter they were going to work on that they were working on that was going to compete with the F-22, right? And of course, yeah. of course, it's basically there now, but our stealth fighter. And, you know, they were talking about they were going to build it and, you know, they hope to be able to sell a whole bunch of them and they were going to, 
you know, it was going to compete with ours and they were going to sell them for something like, you know, it was at the time, it's some ludicrous amount. Don't quote me on this, but it's like $15 million a copy at a time when we're spending like over a hundred million dollars a copy for right. uh, F-22s. And I remember thinking, man, I wonder if they'd sell a bunch of them to us, you know, <laughs> and it, it's an interesting, you know, and I was of course joking around, if they can build them for that cheap. Let's go buy some of them, you know, because we can never build anything that cheap. Right. But um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thought to have if they can if if they can build five or six or seven airplanes that are that are, that are pretty close to as good as ours. Let's say they're just close to as good as ours. You know, at, at some point they're they're just going to outbuild us, and and you know, numerically numbers numbers have a you know a, a quality all their own. You know. If I've got seven airplanes against one, for instance, you know, and they're they're all pretty close. Even if my one is a, a little bit better, if I've got to put money on who's going to win that fight, I think the seven beat the one. You know, maybe, maybe that's not a perfect example, but that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with. That's you know, that's that old saying. You know, quantity has a quality all of its own. All its own. Yep. So yeah, it's uh, it's. So let me sort of take you in a different direction. This is one of the questions I've proposed and always wondered. I've always wanted to, to take the Department of Defense and bring in Eric Prince, for example. Perhaps somebody else, but let's say take Eric Prince and then give Eric Prince, you know, a third of the federal of the federal defense budget and and then release the constraints and say, redesign DOD and make it more efficient. That's sort of been one of the things I've always wanted to do. Now that you've moved from the uniform service to the business side and you're looking in after looking out for so long, do you see ways in which, because you know where we spend the most of any military in the world, are there ways that we can do our business better and more efficiently and effectively? Yeah, Adam, I think it's a great question. The answer is absolutely yes. You know, I, I'll give you an example. We, we talk all the time in our Air Force about modernizing and sustaining the force, right? We're going to modernize and sustain. And um, it, it's an interesting, it, it's, it's interesting code. What it means is we're going to keep flying old stuff for a long time. and Maybe we'll put a few new things on it, right? And we get ourselves thinking, you know, we'll say things like, hey, we're, we're going to fly the B-52, for instance. Good airplane, by the way. You know, I spent a lot of time when I was at Global Strike Command getting funding to, you know, you know make the B-52 better. Big, big fan, right? But, you know, we're going to fly the B-52 until it's 100 years old. And people say, and, you know, people say, but it's not your grandfather's airplane. You know, or your great, in, in many cases, you know, it's not your great grandfather's airplane. You know, we have situations where we actually, I think we, we I, I've heard we've already got a great grandson that, you know, had a, a great grandfather who once flew the B-52. That's an interesting thing, right? A guy who's now flying the B-52 himself, right? And, um, but, but we say, hey, it's not the same, it's, it's not the same airplane your, your grandfather flew, you know, um, and, um, it, it, it was a good airplane, they'll, they'll say, and you know, and, and we've we've continued to to modernize it. But but here's 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 the situation I believe we're in. You know, I read a really interesting report. Um, I don't know, probably eight or nine months ago. It's called "Building an Agile Force." It, uh, it was a general retired lieutenant general retired Dep Tula and uh, another retired officer named Heather Penny. She was an F-16 pilot. I think he was a, right. know, he, 
Gerald Deptula been an F-15 pilot. And um, they basically, you know, they, they basically said in that report, and I think they got it, they said the problem with many of our major defense contractors, what we call the primes, um, is that they've kind of, in many cases, fallen out of the natural state of technology companies. And um, what, what they say is the natural, they said the natural state of a technology company is they innovate and then they produce and then and then we buy and we kind of happily buy. So the example I always use, and, and they say this is very different than modernization and sustainment. And so here's the example I use. Every, lots of people use iPhones, right? And I'll say, hey, what I'll ask somebody, what iPhone do you have? I could ask you, Adam, you might tell me, oh, I, I'm kind of keep up on technology. I've got an iPhone 13, the newest of iPhones. And um, I'd say, oh, well, you, you, you probably have had iPhones for a long time. And you'd say, yeah, absolutely. First iPhone I ever had was an iPhone 4. I said, well, why don't you still have an iPhone 4? You go, well, because the iPhone 13 is so much better. I'd say, well, what, what makes it so much better? And you'd say, have you seen the camera? There's three lenses on it. It takes these high-quality pictures on my iPhone 4. If I want to take a quality picture, I'd have another camera in my pocket. It's okay. Why couldn't you just take the iPhone 13 camera and put it on your iPhone 4? And say, well, yeah, then I'd have a better camera, but it wouldn't, my iPhone wouldn't be as fast. The iPhone 13 is blazing fast. I'd say, you know, um, well, what makes it faster than your iPhone 4? I'd say, well, they've got these, they've, they've got this, you know, great new chip. And I'd say, well, why don't you just take that chip and put it in your iPhone 4? Wouldn't that make it faster? You'd say, I guess if that chip would actually work and I could get it integrated in my iPhone 4, it might make it a little faster. I'd say, oh, okay, why couldn't you do that? I'd say, well, the screen would still be bad. You know, this, have you seen the resolution on the iPhone 13? You know, the touch screen, I used to have to like calibrate the touch screen on my iPhone 4. You know, the iPhone 13, thing is so much, the iPhone 13 is so much better in terms of its touch screen. I'd say, but couldn't you just have put iPhone 13 screen on, on your iPhone 4? You'd say, yeah, I could have done all that. I could have spent a lot of money, way more than an iPhone 13 probably cost me to get all that work done. And I still want to have something as good as an iPhone 13 because it wasn't integrated and meant to be an iPhone 13, right? And, um, and I would say, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But what I've just described to you is a modernization and sustainment. Yeah. What we do in modernization sustainment. And so when somebody says we're going to fly the B-52 until it's 100 years old, but we're modernizing and sustaining it, I'm going to tell you it's still not an airplane that is, you know, if it had been, you know, if it had been built from scratch. We had a time in this country that's called the Century Series Fires um, um, period, yeah. where every six to seven years we're building brand new entire fleets of airplanes. And so we'd say, hey, the F-4, we just built it so much better than the F-105. We're going we're gonna to replace all the F-105s with F-4s. The F-16 is so much better than the F-4, you know, a few years later that we're going to replace all the F-4s, right? We're going to fly like the F-15E, I'm told, until it's like 70 years old. You know, we can't design a fighter. any. We, we, can't, we can't build a fighter anymore in this country in less than 30 years. What has happened? Where, where has that ingenuity gone? I'm going to tell you it's because, you know, large, because we, I, I think that, you know, there's more money in modernizing and sustaining. And so I don't know if the, if, if the big contractors took us down that path or the government took it or you know, whether they took the government down that path or whether the government took the primes down that path. But I'm telling you, it, it's not the way we want to operate. We have to get back into where we're actually making things in America that are a lot better than what we've been using when it comes to our defense. And so something drastically needs to change for that to happen. Do you think that, uh, you know, it's funny that you should mention that because I'm, you know, there was a time when like take the Century Series fighters in which the the aircraft manufacturers, which there was about eight or ten of them at that time, and now there's two or three that actively participate. So 
as we've consolidated and as we we try to 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 build new aircraft. And I ask, you know, it's actually funny. I, a few years ago, I asked Heather about, hey, why don't you guys, you know, just build new aircraft and then, you know, present them to the government? She said, hey, if we actually built, you know, new aircraft series, uh, we would in the air in the Air Force didn't buy it. That you know that would potentially bankrupt companies because they're so expensive to build. And so it seems to me that the acquisition system that we are that we now have has made it such that it discourages innovation amongst defense contractors because if they do in many respects what you're talking about, their upside risk is so high. And so therefore, manufacturers largely focus on the civil sector and this sort of the, the fundamental nature of economics, which I'll ask people, hey, what comes first, supply or demand? And they'll say, oh, well, you have to have demand to then build supply. And in reality, that's absolutely not true. There was no demand for, for iPhones before iPhones existed. The, the iPhone got invented and then after the iPhone got invented, then everybody's like, holy cow, I have to have one of those. I can't live without it. How have I lived so far without an iPhone? And then after supply, then came demand. And so how do we get back to a defense acquisition system that operates, you know, very similarly to the laws of economics in which you can create supply and then there is demand afterwards, which is how it should be and how it was in the past. In many respects, what you're saying, how do we get back to that kind of a system? I think you have to you, you have to bring competition back in the system, right? You, um, I, I think, Adam, um, you know, it, you, you can argue, hey, there's only a few companies in the world that can build, you know, a bomber aircraft, for instance. But this doesn't mean that, you know, that, that once it's built that, you know, some air, one of the aircraft manufacturers owns all, should own all the intellectual property on it, you know, forever. Um, because if they, if they do, then, then the modernization sustainment is going to be a, a no-brainer. This is where they're going to get the money. You know, as I understand it, the Air Force, you know, when they entered into the new helicopter contract, they they managed to keep most of that IP. So as, as things need to be changed out on that aircraft, if they want to look at putting a new instrumentation, heck, new engines, new whatever, as I understand it, the Air Force will be able to do that. And there'll be, you know, there'll be times where we'll want upgrades on that airplane. And if there's more than one company that can bring their capabilities to it, it'll it'll be much better. You know, I, I, I've wondered, you know, you know, how, you know, do how much of the big primes do we need? And, um, you know, mo most will argue with me that we really that we really need them to some extent. But, you know, they, they get such a huge chunk of the of the budget for, um, you know, to develop capabilities. And there's very little left for, for other people. Right. But, you know, we just had a situation in this company. You know, there's a company, I think it's called Boom. They just built like the first, you know, privately, you know, constructed supersonic jet, right? And they did it in like, you know, they did it like in five years with like a, no more than 150 people in their company, and now they're they're embarking on building, you know, a, a, a supersonic airline, right? And they they're already taking orders from companies like American for this airplane, and they're supposedly going to do it in like another, you know, three or four years, right? All right. 
you know, we, we, we couldn't, we couldn't do that if it was a military project. We couldn't probably do it in 30 or 40 years, right? And so, you know, why, why, how, how can a startup company come in and, and do that? And, um, well, no, I shouldn't say how. The fact is that you got you got one doing. It. I think there's more than one that, that's that's actually trying to do that all right now, right? Um, I, I think we've really got to get to the point in in our in our military. You know, somebody says, "Hey, if you, I've heard people say, if you really want it, you're going to have to go with the prime because they'll they'll get you something. You know, even if it's not as you know, even if it's over cost, you know, it's late and there's not as much capability than they originally produced. At least you'll get something." Right. And, um, you know, and, but, but you're going to pay prime prices. You're going to pay, you know, 10, 12, maybe in some cases, you know, 50 times over or whatever. Right. And I, I'm just not sure that that's the case anymore. I think, I think we need to, we need to really open this up. So, so, you know, innovative, competitive companies have, have a, you know, a, are, are in this fight. The problem is we make it so hard for any company to, to get into the fight, you know, to, you know, we, we do things like we, we give, you know, hundreds or even thousands of small business innovative research contracts a year yet, you know, large and, and, and companies produce great things that actually move the military ahead. But then when it comes time to put them in, you'll get them long-term money. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't plan to give them long-term money. I, I always say it's a failure to plan. If you've got something good, you know, you should, you should, you should be thinking about how do I transition this to long-term money? But we're like, hey, we've got another program that already's got long-term money. It's going to kind of provide something like that, and so we're just going to keep doing that. We 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 have to approach this differently, and if if we can, then then you know we can compete as Americans. We've got good minds. We've got innovative people. You know, we we can do this. But if we if and, and you know, but but if we don't solve some of these fundamental problems that I think involves competition. Um, then, then we're gonna, we're just gonna continue to, to really not modernize our force. And, and we largely haven't over about the last 25 years. We, we just have failed to modernize. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. I wonder if you know, I, a few years ago, I worked on a modernization study, and uh, it, and it was more focused on how do we fix the acquisition system. And what we found is is that there, in the ten years prior to us looking at acquisition reform, there had been 179 studies that looked at acquisition reform. We knew everything yeah. we needed to know about how to fix the acquisition system, but yet. Every time, and you know, a new uh, administration comes to power, and then uh, 
comes into office and then there's a new sec death and then Congress gets on the bandwagon and we have some sort of acquisition reform, it, it never really accomplishes what it's designed to do. And then in the end, we, we have a system that's even more bureaucratized. And so I wonder how can we, and in many respects, it's sort of the Darlene Drurian effect. If you remember when she went from the Air Force to one of the major crimes, Boeing or Lockheed or I forget who, and she, you know, knowing that she was going to go from one to the other, she, you know, drove uh, acquisitions to the direction where she was going to go. And, and it ended up being a big scandal. And so, therefore, we got more regulation on top of existing regulation. And so you spend a billion dollars to solve a million-dollar ethics problem. So I guess the question is, how do we get away from, how do we thin out all of this regulation? It makes, it makes the primes ineffective. It makes it hard for small business to, to effectively support DOD. And it just generally makes it hard for DOD to get the kinds of technology it needs. Is there any solution? For, for making this a... I think there is. One of the things you, you definitely have to do is you have to plan to bring new capabilities on. The other thing is, you know, if, if something's really going to get long-term money, you know, um, you know, you, you always say it's got to get program money, you know, and, uh, you know, what, what there, there's a, there's a system that we, you know, a development system we use in the military, you know, all the branches use it. It's called the JCIDS process, J-C-I-D-S. It stands for the Joint Capabilities Integration and Development System. And what, what you do is you start with this JCIDS system that starts way, there's like five full steps to it, right? And, uh, you know, the very first step is like a material solutions analysis. Now, that's what will be listed as, you know, you're going to go in and you're going to go in and do some analysis on, 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 you know, the things that might solve your problem. But what's interesting is before you even ever get there, you know, um, b b before you even hit that first step, there's pre-steps that are like the, the capability, you, you'll have to do like a capabilities-based assessment. And then an initial, you know, you'll have to write an initial capabilities document. And then you'll have to go to, you know, a decision point where somebody decides, you know, are we even going to go look at, you know, are we really even going to go do the, the analysis to determine if there's something out there that would solve our problem, you know, and then you go, you know, and then you say, okay, hey, you know, there, there isn't anything, we're gonna have to build something. And so then you'll go into something called technology maturation and risk reduction. And it turns out for most programs, that's usually like, you know, three, you know, say a two to five year process, just to, you know, go in there and look at how you're gonna mature the technology and reduce risk because we don't like risk in government. And then, and then you'll go into engineering and manufacturing development, and then you'll go into production and deployment, and then you'll go to, you know, eventually you'll take it into what they call operations and support. All along the way, there's all this bureaucracy. The bigger the program, the more, the higher levels to, to, to approve it. And so, so all of a sudden, you know, you go from producing new fighters every, you know, five to seven years, let's say every six to seven years. Um, to, to taking 30 plus years to develop a, a, a new, a, a new capability, a new fighter, right? And, um, you know, or, or a new anything takes way long. And so, so what's interesting is we, we've gone through, you know, you know, I'll use communication. You know, we've gone through a revolution in communication in the last 30 years. 
Yeah, you know, we, we, we still have trouble communicating in our Air Force. You know, we don't have the most, you know, we don't have the most up-to-date information technology systems, right? You know, I mean, pr pretty much if you, you know, if you've got a cell phone in your pocket, you know, you're probably doing better than you do in, in mo most days at your office if you're working for the military, right? And um, so, so my thought is that we just, if we just were able to take and integrate much of the stuff that's that's already been produced in the in the commercial sector over the last thirty years, we would we would gain a great advantage, and we would we could squeeze that JSIS process down. So, for, but, but but I don't think we we've we've you know one of the things my company does is we we go out and look at commercial capabilities. So we go out, we say, okay. What is it that, you know, Global Strike Command needs? And we, we, we work on a needs assessment. Some people, you know, a lot of people call those requirements. I said, we're going to stop using that word requirements. What is it that they need? Describe to me what you need so I can go out and find out if it exists in the commercial world. If it, so we go out and tech scout. We'll, we'll say, hey, these are three or four companies that we think can, can solve your needs. How about we put three of those or four of those companies on small contracts to let them come back and show us what they, what, what they're, capability can do, you know, and often it, it, it's, it's no more than they have to, you know, um, you know, the satellite, you know, make their satellite communication, you know, secure or, or just communicate with a different, a, a different satellite constellation, for instance, so they need to buy, they need to, they need to build a new terminal or something, which by the way, they can do for like 70, you know, in many cases, you know, 75 times cheaper than the air force can do it. And, um, and, and I'm going to say, if you can find those kinds of things, and it's not if, they, they exist, then you can, you can literally start like step four in the JSONs process. You could get right to production and deployment. You know, you might have to do a little bit of modification, but, but even if you get there and you find, hey, I've got this capability, I want to get using it really quick and we can have it ready to go into our airplanes in two weeks. You know, if you haven't started working the money into this, it's, you're not going to see money for close to three years before you're going to get long-term money. And in the meantime, you know, you're a company that's got to keep, keep, keep surviving. So we have to find out a way that when we find technologies that work, we can help companies actually come in and, um, and, and do business with the government. And, and we don't make it an arduous process that takes years. If, if, not if when we do that, we will start moving faster. But I'll tell you, I always call it squeezing the JSIDs process. There are some things that you've got to start way back and it's going to take a while. But even so, the, the, the idea that something should take like, you know, in some cases, 30 years to get where we want to be on something, it's ludicrous. This is not the way that America, you know, used to operate. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of the show. It's been a quick half yeah. hour. And uh, yes. I think the takeaway from this is squeeze the JSIDs process. And, and, yeah, and I, if you can do that, you'll, you'll, you'll solve a lot of problems. Well, hopefully one of the, the uh, listeners for today's podcast will, will be somebody who knows how to squeeze the JSIDs process and can help, uh, <laughs> help make it more efficient. That and uh, hey, hey, to tell you the truth, Adam, my, 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 you know, and I'm not, it's not a plug for my company, but my company knows how to j squeeze the Jason. <laughs> you know, you, but it takes a, it's a lot of work actually, but if you can actually squeeze it, you'll get capability faster in our military than you would have otherwise. All right. Well, with that, I want to thank Krusty Goodfellow, uh, retired Air Force General Officer and now corporate CEO. 
uh, who's squeezing the JSIDS process for us to help us introduce new technologies into into the Air Force and hopefully improve uh, deterrence for the nation. And so, of course, what's yeah. what's the website of SBCC? Uh, it's small s m a o l b as in Bravo, C as in Charlie, charlie.com, smallbcc.com. All right, so if you want to hear more, uh, go to smallbcc.com, and uh, you can drop Krusty a line. So thanks again for being here with us and talking about acquisition and uh, the challenges we face with China. Okay, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, and have a good one. And for the listeners, we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclear Text. Nuclear Text.